right. Glad that you were here. Hey, again, um, I think that our creative arts team, every time we start a new series, just does such a fantastic job in putting together uh, all of the production stuff, especially, remember, we shoot video and we use it in all of our campuses. So what we do is not just here at this campus, but it's in a production that's put out. And I just think that they really do a wonderful job. And can we take a moment and just let them know how much we appreciate all the effort they put into it. Truly, truly appreciate it. Um, I, I have a, a letter here that I was sent, and I just got it uh, actually this afternoon, right before the start of um, the service. And I wanted to, to read it this weekend to everybody that's, uh, that's going to be hearing this. I, I thought it was really cool and really... Um, it just kind of meant a lot to me, and I think maybe it will to you. We have a, a couple that attended uh, JFC for, um, for a number of years, and they retired and ended up moving to Tennessee. And uh, they listen to our uh, podcast every week, and uh, even though they attend a church in Tennessee and are very involved there, they've continued to stay really connected here. And I'll hear from them every once in a while, just how are you doing or we're praying for you or something like that. But this letter was so neat, I thought I would share it with you. Um, uh, I just read a little part of it. It says, uh, we, it hardly seems possible that we retired from Jeffco schools almost nine years ago. Retirement funds were good through para, but as with so many people, we lost so much in our investments in the past few years. So we knew we had uh, to become much more frugal in our lifestyle. The amazing thing in all of this is that our pension checks were not increasing with the cost of living. Investment, investments were next to nothing, but we decided that we would still tithe on our gross income it was like we didn't know how all of this would work, but we just knew that we needed to do it. It was nothing new for us to give to our church, and we felt prior to tithing that we were giving a good amount to God. Then as we tithed, somehow each month our finances were okay. We were not rich as many people would see it, but we were comfortable and happy. Then things started to change, and we can feel it. Jeff and his siblings inherited a small farm in Iowa when his parents passed away. It initially appeared that we would never see much from this because a few of his siblings really wanted to keep the farm in the family. It seemed that there were just as many bills to pay as there was income, but each year the income was slightly higher than the expenses, so we were thankful for that. God was taking care of everything. Then within the last six months, there was a huge change of siblings talking about selling the farm. This was beyond what we thought would ever happen in our lifetime. We had just accepted that the farm would stay in our family. To make a long story short, siblings decided to sell. It sold in January of this year. You have to understand, John, this is huge. And then she put huge in capital letters. As even one year ago, this was not even being talked about. So we knew it was a God thing for sure. One of the first things we wanted to do was to make a list where to tie the money to. Of course, Jubilee was the first one to come to mind. We have been so excited to hear about the JFC plant in Lakewood. Lakewood was home to us for so long. Then recently you mentioned trying to open up at Easter. We just knew God wanted some of God's Iowa farm money to go to our JFC. We humbly offer this to you. If you feel the Lakewood Church would be an appropriate recipient for it, please place it there. You know the needs of Jubilee far better than we do. If there are other places where it needs to be, then we will let you determine that. We just know God blessed us, and we want to be good stewards with what he's given us. And then it's signed Jeff and Connie Holland, and they gave us a check for $10,000 to put where we wanted it to go. I just... Uh, just, you know, our, the Lakewood project just continues to, um, just to come together in so many miraculous ways. But it's people doing things like that that just make it such a joy and such an opportunity. And even though these folks aren't with us, you know, on a living here basis, it's neat 
that in the Holy Spirit, things keep connected like that, and opportunities like that just keep going forward. And I am so thankful and grateful uh, for this, and I just thought, what a, what a neat story, and wanted to share it with you. So, hey, um, if you will, go ahead and grab the notes for tonight. Uh, we'll jump into it. The series is brand new. It's been mentioned a few times, and it's our Easter series. And if you are um, uh, looking for an opportunity to invite someone, we decided, rather than just put everything into one weekend, uh, we wanted to stretch it out over these three weekends right here. Talk about Easter as it needs to be deserved. Here's what I was just praying with the staff downstairs. I, I was praying, God, bring us to the place where we're actually identifying just like Jesus wanted the disciples to do in the garden. You remember, he takes the disciples with him to the garden. He then picks his three best friends, and he says, come and pray with me. And they're, they're, they get sleepy. I'm like, God, don't let us fall asleep right now. Don't let us miss the point of what you did. The most significant event in the history of the universe takes place right now. God, don't let us fall asleep during this point. Don't let us miss it. Help us to do something in us that is beyond our ability. That's what I'm praying right now. So as we talk about the garden, the grave, and the glory, what a great time to invite folks. Bring them to all of our campuses. As it was mentioned, we're going to have over uh, the actual Easter weekend many different opportunities to gather together. So you want to be paying attention to that at your campus. So this is our Easter message, the garden, the grave, and the glory. I'm going to use Mark 14, 32 through 42 for our text. And so if you'll find that in your notes right there, if you have a Bible, uh, I'm reading out of the NIV. So you can turn there, and let me get a drink of water, and then we'll jump in. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He then took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. How many can relate to that right now? Once more he went away, prayed the same thing. When he came back... He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It's a really powerful piece of scripture. If you read it in any of the other gospels, and all four gospels recount in uh, their viewpoint this night, this betrayal leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Each of them have an interesting take on it. Luke's gospel. Luke was a doctor. And uh, as a doctor would tend to do, he was a great note keeper. Luke probably has the most detailed in all of the synoptics of, of what went on. And Luke records that when Christ was praying, that he actually began to sweat drops of blood. And I read that, I remember teaching this several years ago, that I had asked a doctor at one point, is that medically possible? And it is actually under the most extreme duress. It is possible for uh, the blood vessels to actually burst and for it to appear as sweat, but only under the most extreme, stressful, duressing times. And if you read each of the accounts of 
Christ's betrayal and His arrest and the, the mockery that He went through and then the crucifixion and the resurrection. Each one has such an interesting take on it. We'll jump into Mark's Gospel tonight uh, for the purposes of the wording. It really lays out where I wanted to go tonight with Gethsemane. So I put down the purpose of Gethsemane. You remember again, these words to us, we live in a Western Gospel. Hebrew words are little sentences. They have such intricate meaning behind them that if you don't speak the language and you live in another culture, you can be so far away from what's meant. We just read it. We don't understand that behind the very word itself is an entire message. I put down below that, God is into names. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but he is totally into names. You and I, when we pick names for a child, many times it's after someone that uh, we love in our family. Maybe you named your child for your father, or maybe you named your child for your mother. However it happens, many times we pick a name, we like the name, but we don't do it because we we are trying to give a, a, uh, a sentence of declaration to a person. Hebrews were famous for taking a name And saying, we're going to name the child this name because it was a little Hebrew sentence. And by doing so, we're calling forth their destiny. The name John. Literally, it's it's a gift from God. Just wanted to see. Now, I'm sorry I did. So, you always take a risk when you do that. I just... Something inside said, don't do it. And I said, get behind me, and I shouldn't have. It was <laughs> so, so that literally when the name was spoken, you and I just hear the word John, but, but the child would have heard the little sentence, gift from God, so that every time he's, t- literally that's what he's hearing, gift from God, come here, gift from God, do your homework, gift from God, don't touch your sister, gift from God, go to sleep. Said over and over and over again, so, so we laugh but we don't get it, but the idea being that the child is an unwritten story. With a purpose and destiny that God has given, it's the parent's number one objective with the child to bring forth the identity. Now, if you go, well, I I just don't know how much stock I would put into that. Let's use the reverse uh, uh, pressure on it. If you were to tell a child from the earliest of days how stupid they were, or you were to tell the child from the earliest of days what a bother they are or what a mistake they are, yes or no, you're creating an identity that the child will carry into the rest of their lives. And whether or not we agree with it does not mean that it's not true. So so names are critically important. Names, it was God's idea to call forth the purpose, the destiny, or to tell the story with the name. And, And what we lose not speaking the language and being from that culture is that when the Bible gives a name, if we don't hear it, we don't hear it. Oh, how deep was that right there? God is very precise. I wanted to say that he makes absolutely no mistakes, that everything done is never done in a manner that wastes. It's it's so exacting and precise. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. Again, we hear the name. But Bethlehem is a little Hebrew sentence. It means house of bread. When I say that God is precise and that nothing is wasted, to pick up names becomes really interesting. If you think about this, Jesus declared himself as the bread of life. He said, if anyone is hungry, 
come to me and eat of this bread that I'll give you and you'll never be hungry again. How good is that? And he's not talking about the bread made with hands. He's talking about the bread that came from heaven, the manna. That if you eat of this, you'll never be hungry again. He, he said, I, I'm not only am I the bread of life, but I, I'm the water of life. If you're thirsty, drink of me and you'll never be thirsty again. So he declares himself to be known. One of his names, the bread of life. Where is he born? It's Bethlehem. Uh, what an interesting thought. That God is so precise that even the very birthplace of Christ begins to reveal his identity. House of bread. I love that. And only if a person takes the time to begin to study and to, to, to really get after it do you find all these wonderful nuances that the scripture includes. Well, Gethsemane. Again, I say it, and probably if you're a believer, you've probably heard the story how many times? And to the point where you could probably say it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Gethsemane, again, is a little Hebrew sentence, and it's an interesting one. It means oil press. Oil press. Again, God is precise, and everything he does is exacting. Everything that he does is precision. Why would God do that? I think to show everybody who will pay attention that if you look at it, it could not be accidental. When people say, give me proof that he exists, I say, open your eyes and look. How do you know that it's real? Study and there'll be no doubt. Don't just chalk it up to what everybody else says and what culture throws at it. Go look for yourself and see. It is so precise that it can't be accidental. So when he is in the garden at the most torturous time ever, being pressed, the name of the garden is the oil press. I put down that our culture, again, isn't into olives like their culture was. You might like olive oil. You may get olives on your pizza. I bet if you're not Middle Eastern, your knowledge doesn't go too much further. We did a quiz tonight on olive oil. Somebody would go extra virgin. That would be the extent. Would it be okay with you if I gave you some lessons in olive oil production? Why? It might point to an understanding about Gethsemane that you never had before. And here's what I would love. Anyone in this room, do me a favor. If you've gone to Israel with me, raise your hand real quick. Look around. How cool is that? A third of the room, I wait for the day when it's 100%. I cannot. We're going again next year, 2013. If you want to go, go with us. You need to go to Israel. Part of the reason is that, that for years I would teach on Israel... And the Lord told me one time, if you will take people, it will do more for them in one experience than your ability to teach on this for the rest of your life. And the truth of the matter is, if you'll go and experience it for yourself, it will open your eyes, it will cause you... It's like Paul said, I wish you could come to know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge. How do you know something beyond knowledge? You must experience it in order to get beyond your brain. Does that make sense? So that if you go there, you can touch these things, you can, you can taste these things, you can witness these things, you can experience it, so that when it's taught, you have this understanding and ability to know something. It goes beyond what you can read. You experience it for yourself. One of my favorite experiences in all of Israel is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the actual place. There are few places you can go to where you can say to somebody, it was here. What we normally have to say was, it was around here. 
Why? Nobody was there 2,000 years ago. Somebody goes, well, yeah, but there's a church on top of it, so it has to be. It's like me saying, you know, there was a gold mine here. How do we know? Well, there's a church. Nobody knows. We just, they built it. So, ultimately, we go to Gethsemane, and when we're in the garden, walking amongst the trees, I have, I have if you went on the first few trips with us, we, we would go in where every tourist goes to. And right across the street from that is still part of the garden. At the time, it would have been one huge continuous garden, but now they've put streets in. So there's a, there's a, a protected gate surrounding another garden. And it's completely empty right next to one of the most busy spots in all of Israel you could go to. And I happened to be standing outside of the gate and I saw a few people walk into this other garden. And the guy that was standing there, I asked him, what's in there? And he told me it's just part of the garden. And I said, well, how come everybody's not in there? And he said, because this is private. And I said, well, how do we get in there? And he says, you can't. And I said, come on, there's got to be a way. And he goes like this. Certain things are universal. Stan, it's universal. So I think, I think at that first time, I think I pulled 40 bucks out. And I gave him $40. And he opened the gate and our whole group got to go in. Nobody else is in there. And I'm like, this is what we're doing from now on. So we get in there. No one's there. I take these scriptures We're standing in the midst of these trees where Jesus was. And we begin to talk about this experience. And at the end of it, I tell people, I want you, go now. Don't go with the group. If you're married, go with your spouse. If you you need to get by yourself, go by yourself. But go right now and experience for yourself what Jesus did in this place. Because if all you gain from it is just head knowledge, it will not do the same as if you could touch right now what he felt. It's what Jesus said to Peter. Peter. Don't go to sleep on me right now. I need you. What I would speak to you is this message is so important. Don't go to sleep on me right now. Touch it for yourself. Feel what he felt. Experience the pressure that he was under. More importantly, ask yourself why. Because you were on his mind when he did it all. It was not accidental. It was not... Listen, this is so tremendously different, difficult that the very Savior of the world is asking the Father if there's any plan B. Let's go... That I can't do this. This is too difficult. This is too hard. My soul... One of the scriptures says, His soul is vexed. Using words we don't understand. Have you ever been at that place where it was so difficult that you couldn't see a way out. Have you ever been... He said, my my soul is at the place of death. The Savior is echoing these. I can't do this. The difficulty of what he was facing and why he was going through it. My goodness, to read it and to go, wow, or to touch it and to own it for yourself. If you were me, how... If you knew how important this was to me that you touch it, what would you say? If we traded places right now, what adjective could you use to possibly describe it? How would you coax someone to to touching him or to feel it? To not just know it in your head, but to know it in your soul. 
to not be able to repeat a scripture, but to walk out of here having experienced how much he loves you and the price that was paid for you. How do you do that? This is where words become absolutely superfluous at times. What can you say that possibly gets somebody there? The Holy Spirit must take it and cause someone to touch it. To to taste for themselves how good he is. To experience grace, not by a description of it, but by the execution of, he gave me his grace. I said this a long time ago in, in trying to describe the best way to say thank you once you realize something is not to use words, but it's to go out and use what was done for you in the proper way. Well, if you could leave here tonight actually taking the grace of God with you so that it was how you expressed to everybody else. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Let me give you lessons in olive oil production. There are different levels, extra virgin, virgin. If you are Italian, I'm probably butchering this word, limpante. Literally means clear. It was the oil used to light the oil lamps. The fourth one was refined oil. The fifth one, olive oil. And the last one, the residue. So you've got extra virgin, virgin, Lepante, refined olive oil, and residue. Give you two thoughts about these level of oil. To be able to get the residue, the olives had to be crushed. In olive oil production, again, I'm not trying to just give you knowledge for knowledge's sake. I'm trying to get you someplace to experience for yourself. Olives, when they're picked, the first press is a press without using any mechanical devices, especially during that time. It would have been simply that whatever the olives were put into, the pressure of laying upon themselves would cause a certain amount of seepage because they were so ripe. That's the extra virgin. That's the one that's untouched. The one that's unmolested. The one that hasn't been pressured, the one that hasn't gone through any kind of, the next one then is when the pressure begins, the virgin, then the lampante, the clear, and on down to the final product, what you're left with are olives that have given everything that they have, and so they still want more, that's the big wheel that maybe you've seen, the, the pictures of the big stone wheel that would, that would go in a circle inside of a, a trough and an animal. Most likely a donkey would be hooked to it and just walk in a circle all day long and it would turn and it would crush the olives to extract from it everything that it was able to give. The very last thing was the residue and the olive had to be absolutely crushed in order to get the residue. But here's what's significant about that. They would take the residue and they would make a soap out of it, and it was an exquisite soap that was so costly and took so much time that many people couldn't afford to get the soap. But the soap had the incredible ability, more than any other product known to man at that time, it could clean you like nothing else could clean you. So where are you going with this, ultimately? The Bible says, Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And then it says he was crushed in order to make peace with God. 
I want to submit to you that the wording here is so beautiful, it is so precise and it's so perfect that Jesus did not go through some little press. He did not go through some insignificant punishment. He did not go through something that just kind of began to take the life from him. That he allowed himself to be absolutely given, crushed to the point that the only thing left was a product that causes the soul to be clean. Like nothing else can clean it. That the work of Christ, the crushing of Christ, here's what's really, really interesting. He was crushed so that you don't have to be. He was wounded so that you never have to go through it. He was bruised to pay for your sin and my sin. And anyone in the room who goes, I don't have any, you, don't, you got it because you just lied big time to us. Everyone in the room is with sin. You know, the problem with sin is that most of us calculate someone else's sin as worse than our sin or that my sin's not quite that bad. But I need to tell you something. Your sin is what put Jesus on a cross. And if you come to the recognition of that, the best thing to do with it is not to sit there and go, thank you, Lord. You know, the best thing to do with it is to get up and leave this place recognizing how he feels about you so it changes the way you live in this world. Recognize how much he loves you and that that love is equal for everybody else so that the way you talk to people and the way you love people, the way that you love your wife, the way that you respond to your children, the greatest way we know you get it is if you can give it. Because we can't give what we don't have. And therein lies the great truth of this message. To sit here and only become smarter about what Jesus went through won't help you. To touch it so that you can experience it for yourself is what is crucial. It's interesting that when the Bible begins to talk about olives, knowing that people who didn't live in that culture would read it later would have to figure out some of the things. I found an interesting one. This was, this was really neat. Psalms 128, 3 and 4. Listen to this. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive trees or olive shoots all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now again, this is such a, a, a wonderful scripture. And yet it's written to a group of people who understood what it meant. But you and I, our children are going to be like olive trees or olive shoots growing up. What, what does that mean? Here's, here's a wonderful definition. I found, I found this interesting thought on olive trees this afternoon. Let me, let me, let me give you this. From seed to a mature tree in the Middle East takes 20 years. From seed to a mature tree. Your children are going to be like olive trees. Let me just ask you a question. Anybody who's raising children, do you ever feel like they're never going to mature? <laughs> now, just be honest with me right now. Do you just like, feel like, man, I am working, I am praying, I am sowing? I am giving, and nothing is happening. Just be honest with me right now. You ever felt like, we read the Bible, here's God describing to us, your children will be like olive trees. We read that, we just go, oh, that's like olive trees. Wow. Well, I mean, go God. Was 20 years. I, we've only got two under the age of 20 anymore. 
The other three are past it. I would, I would affirm to you that you don't start seeing the fruit till later. Do you agree with that? Listen to this. Listen how brilliant this is. They live an average of 500 years. Here's God saying, your children will be like olive trees. I think the Lord is promising that I want to give your children length of days. I love that promise right there. How about this one? They're tenacious. You can't hardly kill an olive tree. When, when the Jews, listen to this, when the Jews were exiled from Israel by the Romans, they cut down every tree to keep them from coming back and being able to rebuild the temple. The very olive trees that Christ was at that night were cut down. And yet today when you go there, there are 2,000-year-old olive trees. It is scientifically proven right there. Where did they come from? They grow back once cut down. Now, what's the significance of that? I'm sitting there this afternoon, I'm looking at that, and I think to myself, God, how many times have I almost thought I've destroyed my children? No other parents ever thought that, apparently. Now, I want, be honest with me, right? Are you so good at your parenting that you never think to yourself, God, please come through. Just be honest with me right now. Because I have thought to myself, Sandra, I have, I have looked as a parent and thought to myself, I have messed up so bad here if you don't take it and make a miracle out of it. I am so reliant on him to cause something good to happen, in other words. And I'm reading it this afternoon. Here's God saying, your children will be like these. You, if you cut them down, they come back. How many of you have messed up, but the resiliency that God places inside of your kids? Amen. Yeah, amen. Maybe it's a word if you're sitting there right now wondering. God can do anything. And he can rescue I'll give you the last one. They're a symbol of peace and prosperity throughout the world today. The symbol of peace is a dove with what? An olive branch. I, it's just highly significant, I think, that when God says, here's what they're going to be like, if you ever just study the Bible, just, just study it, you will find such wisdom and such depth with it that it's just incredible. Isaiah 53, 3 and 5 I quoted half of it. Let me read it. He was despised and rejected by men 800 years before the birth of Christ. This is written. If you ask, how do you know that the Bible is true? One of the ways is prophecy. This is prophetically written 800 years before the birth of Christ. Listen. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And I would submit to you that that healing is not spiritual only, but that Christ is a healer of our physical bodies today. So you go, thanks for the info, so what, pastor? 
Think if you can understand what I'm trying to describe when we go to Israel, what we experience there at Gethsemane. I want my people to experience Jesus. I don't want you to come and experience John. I don't want you to come to this church and experience our programs, our lighting, our ability to put together a backdrop, our music. I want you to experience Jesus. I can't be any more clear about my intentions and my declarations. He is everything and we are nothing. He is what it's all about. Philippians 3, 10 and 11 Paul writes to the Philippian church, I want you to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. If you sit here tonight, and maybe you came from a church or a place that taught, beware of experience. Shun away from it. Shy away from it. If you get into experience, you're going to end up in error. Let me twist the table on you right now. If you're not experiencing him, you already are in error. You are deceived. If all you are is smarter from a message like this, you miss the point entirely. You need to experience Jesus to be changed. You need to experience Jesus to have life. You need to experience Jesus to get any of it. If all you do is go, I went to church, I, who cares? It won't hold water before God. You need to say, I knew your son. Last weekend, I led a Seder. You don't know what that is. It's the Passover meal. We call it communion. Jesus didn't take communion. You don't, like, what does that mean? Jesus never took communion. Communion is the name that we gave it in the church. He was having a Passover meal. Boy, I wish I had time. He's keeping the Passover. He's perfect and precision in everything he does. He's the Passover lamb. One of the things in teaching about the Passover, I'm trying to convince people, here's the deal. Don't just come and and try to get knowledge. You want to take this home and experience the Passover for yourself. Do you remember the point of Passover? That God had said to Pharaoh, let my people go. He gave him plagues in order to convince him. And the tenth one, the worst one, The death of the firstborn. It's going to cost you. And he sent the angel of death. And the only escape from the angel of death, the sacrificial lamb. They had to take the blood from the lamb and apply it to the doorpost of the house. And then the angel would pass by. Just because you were a Jew didn't mean you escaped the death. Just because you, you, you understood what was going on didn't mean you escaped death. The only way to escape death was to participate in applying the blood. Listen to me. You could sit here tonight and know these scriptures better than me. You could leave here tonight having read it and experienced Easter for the last 50 years. But if you have not applied the blood of Christ to your life, you are not safe from death. The angel of death will not pass your house by. You will die, friend. And I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritual death. God offers to you life tonight. He died for every man, woman, and child universally. But it's only applied personally. You must participate. And not just know it in your head. Can I give you four takeaways in my mind from this message? 
The first one is that he suffered so that you don't have to. If you are suffering right now, I would say to you, Jesus knows what it feels like. God wanted him to suffer so that he could relate to you. It's one of the reasons. God is not distant and away. He is here now and he knows what you feel and he wants you to come to him. Second one is that he was rejected so that you could be accepted. You never, ever need to walk with rejection on your life ever again. God approves of you. Third, God loves you and his blessing is on the table if you want it. Fourth, only those who want to participate do. Salvation is universal, but it is applied personally. I thought to myself when I wrote the message, God, in coming into this time, the church is better at Christmas than we are at Easter. You understand what I mean by that? Let me explain. I'm not against Christmas at all. I love Christmas. I married Mrs. Claus. <laughs> Did I or didn't I? <laughs> if you knew our Christmas budget... <laughs> is probably a great example of what I'm talking about. We've learned how to put together the Christmas package. But when it comes to Easter, the significance of the event far outweighs Christmas. Of course there had to be a beginning. Of course the birth of Christ fits perfectly into what God's plan was. But without the death and the resurrection, there's no story. Paul said, if everything we do doesn't have the resurrection, we're to be pitied above every creature. We've just fooled ourselves. It is the most significant event in the history of the universe. And we turn it into a rabbit issue. We turn it into pageantry. And I'm not against any pageantry. But ultimately, if we're not experiencing the most significant event, all we do is become wiser about something that we're supposed to be experiencing. And I'm just like, God, how do I get my people to experience it? How do we stop? And how do I say, Holy Spirit, come in the middle of this and touch our hearts and open our eyes and make our senses become aware of how wonderful you are and how much you love us and the price that was paid for us so that when we leave this place, our lives are changed. So that how we, how we view everything is viewed through this resurrection and not through just the knowledge of the resurrection. And I'm convinced I come back every time to this. It's such a helpless place that it puts me in. But it's the most powerful place spiritually that unless the Lord builds the house, I stand up here and I labor in vain unless God takes the moment then and you experience him, there's nothing more that can be done except for people who want to experience the opportunity to experience. So, Jonathan and the team that's here, I'll have those guys come and get ready. What I want is for this first song to totally be an opportunity for you to sit in amazement 
at what God's done for you. I want you, yourself, to ask the Holy Spirit, reveal to me, open my eyes, open my ears, open my heart, so I might experience you right now. I I don't want you to take off out of this place going, okay, it's just the Easter message or it's just the Easter season again. I want you to experience Jesus all over. I'm not talking. This is really important. I don't feel like I'm talking right now to people who don't know him. I feel like I have geared this first message towards people who do know him. But I'm asking you, are you experiencing him and the resurrection right now fresh in your life? Are you touching it as though it were, it were pertinent to where you are right this minute again? Is it softening your heart and is it opening your experiences to see how much he loves you? Because my goodness, if that's not happening for us, I, it just has to happen. It just has to happen. There's just not plan B. This is it. Father, God, I just, I ask that you would do what only you can do. Church, listen to me right now, please. This is so, so critically important to me. God, I admit in front of this group of people, I can't do anything for them whatsoever. You are the only one who is able to make this happen. God, I'm asking right now for people, they're here tonight because they love you. They're here tonight because they're in a relationship with you. They're here tonight, God, because you have made all the difference in their life. I'm asking for those people that you would give them a fresh perspective on your love for them. That you would give them a brand new hope tonight and a different level of understanding what it all means. God, I'm asking, break any complacency off of our lives that keeps us from knowing you. I would ask that you would transport us right now to that very garden. To the very place where your soul was in agony and let us recognize you willingly went through that so that we could have peace with God. You freely gave your life so that our lives wouldn't be required. And the best way that we can possibly say thank you is not to mouth words or sing a song. It is to go out of this place and to live in the experience of the resurrection. God, open our eyes to it. Touch our hearts with it. Make it brand new and real to us as never before. And I pray it in the only name that it's even possible tonight. His name is Jesus. It's Jesus. Okay, church, would you keep the garden in your mind right now and is the worship team at every campus right now enters into this time God is able God is able to draw us all together to one place all of our campuses everyone that's listening wherever however all together now God wants to draw us to one place at his feet 
And I pray that as you hear this, he would open your eyes, open your ears, open your heart. And when this song is over, we'll direct you to communion, to the cross, prayer, whatever you need. But allow the Holy Spirit right now the opportunity to touch your heart.